good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be. We're going to begin our list of commands that you'll really see from verse 9 all the way through verse 21. I've told you over the past couple of weeks, we're going to take this relatively slow. So this week, we're going to be dealing with just the simple phrase of let love be genuine, or I thought that it was simple when I began my study this week. Um, And we'll make our way through, um, like I said, really breaking this down into two major categories. The first is how we love one another inside the body. And then secondly, we're going to look at the commands that God gives to his church in regard to how we conduct ourselves uh, inside of a lost and dying world. But today what I want to do is tackle what I believe to be the most assaulted word in the English language. Um, If you know anything about me, I have made the joke over the past couple of years that I want all the words back, like give them back to me and their appropriate meaning. And I don't think that that could be more true of any word other than this one. Love is perhaps the most downgraded and assaulted word that we find in the English language. And I really don't just mean the perversions that we see inside of marital relationships or um, the various ways that the world assaults us. I also mean the way that we as individuals, even those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, have assaulted the word love by mixing it with something sinful. And really the, the major thrust of the text today is let love be genuine. If you have an older translation, it might say something along the lines of let love be without hypocrisy. And to tackle this, it really is a very difficult task because when we're looking at the commandment, we want to understand what love is, and then we want to understand how it is that we can conduct ourselves and we can live in that love in a way that is truly genuine, that is without any form of mixture inside of it. And so our aim today is to look and to understand what love is. We'll go to the fountainhead of love, namely Christ, and then we'll see how we can possess it, how we can lay hold of this love. And then lastly, we'll look at demonstrations and commands inside of the New Testament on how we can express it one to another. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 3 and actually make our way to the end of the chapter. We don't want to lose verses 3 through 8 as we consider these commands. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individual members, one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Love in harmony with one, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to see the commands that you have given to your bride. Lord, may we be glad, glad servants. May we gladly submit to your rule and to your reign. And Lord, as you give commands, Lord, what lofty commands you give. And yet, Lord, these commands are to be without burden. We're reminded over and over again that your burden is light and your yoke is easy. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to these commands, that we would feel the freedom that we have in Christ, that these commands flow from a justified life. They flow from being a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider these things, yes, Lord, may they weigh heavy upon us in a sense that we long to be obedient to them. But, Lord, may we, in the midst of longing and desiring and aiming to obey them, may we still and most importantly feel the freedom that we have in Christ to obey them. For, Lord, in our former life, we did not we did not possess the ability, we did not possess the desire, and yet, Lord, by the Spirit of God, you've quickened us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us in light of that wonderful gift of the Spirit, aim to be obedient to our head. It is in the name of Jesus, and through his love, and through his blood, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, as we walk through this, what I want to do is I want to, first and foremost, ask the question, why is the commandment structured this way? I mean, you, you know, you look at commands from time to time, and Paul often just gives a blanket command. As you read through this, there's just really simple phrases, abhor what is evil. That's just a really straightforward statement. But here you have this phrase of let love be genuine, or if you have an older translation, it actually is kind of dealing with a negative saying, let love be without hypocrisy. I mean, why not just say, love one another? I mean, we've seen this really throughout the scriptures. John ever constantly is reiterating the phrase, love one another. He's meditating upon the commands of Christ in his last days. And as he's meditating upon them, all he can do is continue to look out over a congregation or as he's penning a letter, considering the people that he's writing to, he tells them over and over and over again, love one another. And then we get to this command from the apostle Paul and he makes this statement so as to say, let love be love. Let it actually be love. Let it be without hypocrisy. Let it be without mixture. And so the question is, why is it that the Apostle Paul would write it in such a way as to make us consider what we are mixing our love with? And I think that we can all agree that the primary reason that Paul would write this in such a way is because love is often faked. Love is often faked. Love is often corrupted in some way as to make it something less than what it was. As I was reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this, he was speaking of the ways in which the word love is being assaulted in his day. That's somewhere around 50 years ago. And in that day, he's considering things like entertainment and he's considering things like society and culture. And I would like to invite him to our present day and say, see how it has continued to be assaulted. But hear me, we must not first and foremost look out to the world and see how they have corrupted it. This is a letter to the church. 
This is a letter dealing with the particular individuals who have, by the mercies of God, offered themselves as living sacrifices. And even in this context, the apostle Paul looks at them and says, listen, let love be genuine. Do not permit any form of hypocrisy to mix in with this blessed thing that we call love. And to give you just a couple of illustrations of this throughout the scriptures, I think one that immediately comes to mind for me is Saul and David. You remember this story, don't you? Saul sees David conquer. And immediately a love. And I do think that at this, at this point, it is a genuine love. He loves David. He's grateful for the way that the Lord has used him. But then all of a sudden, as time progresses, there's this phrase, this phrase that I'm sure haunted Saul. As they're entering into Jerusalem, the phrase is, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden, love begins to be mixed with envy. And as love begins to be mixed with envy, amazingly, it ceases to be love. It's like adding salt to your drinking water. And all you do is find yourself empty and dry. The reality is that, the, that Saul, as he's looking at David and considering the ways, yes, that he loved him previously, now all of a sudden, there is this tainted, wicked thing of envy that has entered the cup and poisoned it all together. Did Saul love David? Most certainly, seemingly. The scriptures are clear in this. But oh, how quickly sin corrupted that love. And then we go forward, and perhaps the clearest of all illustrations, we see our Lord in the apostle, the disciple, Judas. Did he not walk with him throughout his years of ministry? Did Judas not follow him? He kept the money back. He seemed to be one who gladly served the Lord. Obviously, our Lord was not, was not deceived he knew exactly who he was, and yet what we see in Judas is a love that is not love. We see a love that is feigned, that it is fake, that it is a facade, and it is one of the most wicked and heinous things that we see. Is it not such an incredible perversion that this great act of kissing a cheek is one of love and fidelity, and it is used for betrayal? There's another occurrence in the Old Testament of a man who draws near, and as he draws near, the, the brother is saying to him, brother, how are you? And as the brother draws near, he grabs the beard of his brother, brings him in, kisses his cheek, and thrusts a sword through his stomach. Love can be feigned. And if we could go so far as not just to look at Saul and David and, or Judas and our Lord, I think we can rightly look at ourselves and say, oh, how our love is often feigned, is often mixed. Perhaps it is that there is but a drop of envy, or perhaps there is a bit of our preferential pride that is introduced to the way that we love one another, and all of a sudden this love begins to be drained of its beauty because we've tainted it with this wicked, wicked thing called love. Or worse yet, perhaps it is that we conduct ourselves as Judas and we simply use love as a means to an end as we fake it. Love is not to be feigned. Calvin said this in regard to it. It is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. Ingenious. To counterfeit a love that we do not really possess. 
And we see this over and over and over again. And perhaps it is that you even in this moment are considering ways that you have historically betrayed the beauty of love by your own tainting of it. Or you have been betrayed by someone who has feigned love, who was an ingenious at faking it. And if that's the case, I imagine in this moment, you're thinking to yourself, if sin enters into this cup, we are corrupting it. We are not letting love be genuine. And the immediate thought would be, why, can, why is this command even present? Because I am a fountain of sin still. Still, there is corruption that I allow to enter into pretty much every type of relationship. And so I think not only should we ask the question, why is it structured this way? But I think we need to get to the bottom of the Apostle Paul's command. And I think it is a rather simple and clear command because Christian love is to aim for perfect purity. Christian love is to aim for perfect purity. Don't let anyone look at the commands of Christ and downgrade them because you have difficulty keeping them. In the, in the truest sense of the word, when the Apostle Paul says, let love be genuine, he is not going around a bush or he's not trying to make it something less than what he is. He's telling you that what God desires from his people is a genuine, genuine love for one another. Free from sin, free from corruption, free from hypocrisy, a genuine love for one another. It makes me think of the fabrics that are mentioned in the Old Testament. It should not be mixed or perhaps even a more visceral illustration, I think of the burning bush, then what is that fire made of? It is not made up of various parts. It's not consuming the bush so as to feed upon it. No, it's a pure fire. It is fire that is just fire. So it is to be with the love that we have for one another, that our love not be tainted with anything other than love, that it is a cup filled to the brim, that there's no room for anything else. This is the command that the Apostle Paul gives us, and we dare not downgrade it. We dare not downgrade it. Don't let anyone look at you and say that God doesn't expect from you a perfect love. He does. One of my favorite A.W. Pink quotes says, God has not lost his ability to command because we have lost our ability to obey. He is king and he commands a perfect love from us. He demands this from us, that we have a genuine love for one another. And perhaps it is in this moment, you're thinking to yourself, well, what a hopeless endeavor. No, saint, it's not a hopeless endeavor. It is a beautiful, wondrous obedience that we aim for. And to aim for anything lesser will only birth a lesser love. And this is not a fake it until you make it concept here. I hear that phrase often in regard to the Christian life. What a foolish phrase. Fake it until you make it. Let me tell you why we cannot fake it until we make it inside of the Christian life. Let me give you a couple of things here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, Peter continues in chapter four, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. And then let's hear our Lord, what he has to say on it. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We do not fake it till we make it. We obey. We obey. We do not corrupt the word love the way that the world does. Love is not an emotion. Love is not something that is a controlling agent for you. No, brothers and sisters, we love because we have been commanded to obey. 
We are commanded to love. It is an act of the will. And what we must do as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, is put to death any comprehension, any idea that we will fake it until we make it. No, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, we will obey. We will obey. We will love one another. And it will be our great aim and desire to have a love that is free from corruption, free from sin. And though it is lofty, where we fail, we will run to Christ for forgiveness. What we must do, brothers and sisters, is not have any sense of perpetuating a facade. Fake it till you make it is just that. It is a continuation of a love that is filled with hypocrisy. No, we obey our Lord. We see him say, listen to this lofty command. I mean, this is, I I can't even fathom John pinning this command. Because he knows, he knows that this is impossibility as a primary recipient of the unique love that the son had for the disciples. Listen to this. This is my command. This is John 15, 12. This is Bible. This is not an interpretation. This is my commandment that you love one another as, just as I have loved you. I'm gonna be honest with you. That scares me to death. You're telling, look, this is the Lord looking at the disciples. He's not mincing words here, nor did he ever. And he says, just as I have loved you, just as I've given myself unto you, as I've cared for you, we'll look at that love here in a moment, but just as I've given you this, you give this to one another. Tell me, was our Lord's love filled with anything but love? Could we call it a facade? Could we say that there was envy in it? Pride, malice? No, brothers and sisters, it was a love that was just love. He commands. And if we are going to obey this command, we must understand what love is. And we also must not commit the grave error that I see the vast majority of both Christians and the world. They make this great error. They go to the streams to understand the love of God. We do not ever go to the streams. We go to the fountainhead. So often, even as I prepare and walk through marriage counseling, there's a question that always comes to my mind. And I ask every man this, you tell me the love that Christ has for the church. I'm not asking you what that means for the way that you love your wife. I'm asking you, you tell me of the love that Christ has for the church. And I'll tell you everything that you need to know on the other side of that. Because if you can comprehend that, if you've gone to the fountainhead and you've drank deeply of the love of Christ, you'll just walk in it. Because you've tasted, you've seen, you've drank of the wondrous love of Christ. And so what we must do is we do not look at the streams. We don't look at how our feeble and frail attempts to love one another. We don't go there to understand it in full. No, brothers and sisters, we go to the fountainhead. We go to Christ and there we'll see what love actually is. And so the things we must understand, what love is, and then secondly, we must also understand what the fountainhead conducts himself like. So let's look first, how can we know the love of God? So the command that we love one another, that it's genuine love, we must first and foremost understand the most genuine of all love. And that means that we know the love of God. Well, the very first way that we see this is that we see the love of God in our adoption. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See, I love this word see, don't overlook it. It's an invitation to pause and to adore. See, 
When, he, when, when John's writing this, he's not saying, oh, look, there's a stop sign. No, he's saying, stop, see, admire, adore everything that you are beholding. And what he's saying is, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Dear saint, how can you know the love of the Father? You can know the love of the Father because you have been adopted into his family. When you make your way into that precious, wonderful family of God, you go forth crying, Abba, Father. And the reality is that as you enter in, you are welcomed as a son or daughter. This is the love of God, that he has adopted a ruined sinner. And don't forget your position in the midst of all of this. There was nothing in you to draw this beautiful, wonderful pinnacle father to say, I want that one. And yet that's exactly what we have. A father who loves us an unmerited, wonderful love that he has given to us, according to Ephesians 1, from before the world began. In love, he predestined us for adoption. What kind of love has the father given to us? He has given to us an unmerited adoption. And in the midst of this, John says, Paul's, do you see this? Do you see the wonder of the love of God? That he would look at you, no beauty, no merit. As a matter of fact, we can safely say demerit. and says, I want her. I want him to dine at my table. I think of Mephibosheth who says, I am a dead dog before you. And David says, eat at my table. This is the love of God that he would adopt ruined sinners into his family. Let's go further, shall we? We see and know the love of God through the sending of Jesus. Immediately, I imagine everybody's mind goes to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I think 1 John 4, 9 through 10 clarifies even further. It says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest, made clear, made visible. And hear me, apart from this, you do not know the love of God. We cannot lay hold of the wondrous love of God apart from laying hold of Christ, the perfect revelation of the Father. It's in him that it's manifested. It's in him that it's made known. Let's go forward, shall we? That in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What's the love of God? How is it manifested? It's the setting forth of the son. And not only is it the setting forth of the son, let's continue, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him, that our Lord's love is so astonishing that he sends the perfect son radiant in all of his ways to manifest, to reveal, to be in essence a perfect sermon exposition of the father. And then he sees him delivered up for our trespasses so that we might live through him. This is the love of God manifested. We look to Christ, we see him in wonder and awe and our souls are thrilled. And then we see him die in our stead and we say, there is the love of God manifested. 1 John 3.16 clarifies, by this we know love. Do not downgrade this. Do not give yourself another means of attaining the love of God. The scriptures do not. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The world will tell you, listen to me, the world will tell you that you can gain a knowledge of love anywhere you look. They'll tell you you can gain it through your favorite fictional novel or through the best TV show you've watched. You cannot. The love of God, true love in its perfection and its beauty is seen in Christ and Christ alone. 
when you look anywhere else, you're seeing a tainted cup. Don't look there. Don't go to the streams. Go to the fountain. If we do go to the streams, your love will only look as flawed as the stream. We go to the fountainhead. We look to Christ, the manifestation of the love of God. We see him lifted up for our trespasses. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we go nowhere else. And hear me, we are so easily captured by lesser loves, are we not? Even the way we use the word is so frail. Never be captured by lesser love. The reality is that every time you look to a stream and you think to yourself, oh, how lovely, you're either admiring, hear me, you're either admiring the little glimpses that we have in the midst of those, as you maybe perhaps you're looking at the love a, a husband has for a wife and you're seeing glimpses of the glory of God there because he's gone to the fountain he's seen. Or perhaps it is something far worse because we go on calling lust love from time to time, don't we? Perhaps it is that you are admiring sin, not glory. We go to the fountainhead. And hear me, if you're looking to Christ, if you're trying to understand and see his love there, it will never be tainted. It will never be tainted. Lastly, we see it in any and all of God's self-disclosure now, I come to this conclusion based upon this text, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. His self-disclosure, as he reveals himself, is revelation of love in its truest sense. And I must even recant to some degree because it's hard to say that he is just the fountainhead. He is love itself. Certainly, he is the source. He is where we go to drink from, but he is love in and of himself. As if he were not, there would be no love. And so what do we have? We see the wonderful love of God. We see it in the, in the manifestation of the Son. We see it in God's revelation of himself. There we see and behold genuine love, the fountain of all love. And we must never divorce this we must never take love apart from God because we know that it's counterfeit. We know that it cannot be genuine, that it is not real. If it is in contradiction to God and his being, we know with certainty that it is not love. And so that leads us to the question, how can we know it? We can know it through our looking unto Christ, seeing and beholding it, and then going a bit further, how can we possess it? I mean, not just possess it in the sense of, okay, I see it and I possess it intellectually, but how can I possess, how can this be essentially a part of my being now? Like how, how is it this command to let love be genuine? I've seen its fountain and I've seen where it comes from. How can I lay hold of this love so that I might express it to my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Well, first, 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Do not let anyone tell you, though, though this be certainly true, that you only love God because God loved you first. That's a fact. That's without negotiation. That is reality. But this text first and foremost deals with brotherly love. The reality is that you love one another only when and only because God has expressed and given his love to you. It is an impossibility to love the brothers, to love the saints of God apart from God showing us and giving us his love. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. It must be 
imbibed before it can be expressed. We must drink deeply of the love of God, and it is His to give, and as He gives it, it is so clear. And if you have experienced the wonder of conversion, then you know that there's something wonderful that changes about your whole being in the midst of it. And it's not just because, though, first and foremost, that he loved you, but it is also the fruit of the Spirit of God and his working in our lives. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we possess it? It is the wonder of conversion. It is that the Spirit of God has given us the wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that activity, he has poured the love of God into our souls. That the love that we have is not carnal exclusively any longer. Instead, it is filled with the power of the Spirit of God. We've seen, we've beheld, we've rejoiced in the love of God given to the church, and now we have experienced it, and in the midst of our experiencing of it, we go forth giving it. That is the the process in which we can possess truly the love of God. Do we do so with perfection, brothers and sisters? I will say it again, no. But God has not lightened his command. He has not lightened his command. We love one another. He has done everything necessary for us to possess such wondrous, divine love. And he's called us to faithfully, faithfully give it to one another. And perhaps it is that you would say in the midst of this, okay, I've seen and beheld the love of God. I've seen my own failings in the way that I express that love. I've seen various types of things enter into that cup. I see that I possess it based upon the spirit of God's work in my life and because he has loved me And I think an important question in the midst of this is, how can we nurture genuine love in our own souls? I mean, perhaps it is that you have a longing. You think to yourself, I want to express genuine love. Perhaps it is that you're thinking, as I did as I was walking through this, how do I get rid of the junk that's in this cup? How do I I expiate, as it were, the sin from this cup? How do I nurture this love that God has lavished on me and called me to express toward my brothers and sisters in the faith? Brothers and sisters, we can nurture love. And here, let me express how. Going back to that command in John, he says, love one another just as I have loved you. How do we nurture love? the love of God that has been birthed in our souls. We savor, savor the love of God in the Son. We savor the love of God in the Son. We are so quick to grab hold of some type of activity to birth a deeper love. Hear me, the only way for you to grow in the miraculous, wonderful love of God is for you to stare at the Son. If you stare at the sun and you rejoice, you experience all the more the love of God. If you live your life in the gospels, looking at his beautiful working and care for the disciples and for those around him, then I am convinced that your love will naturally grow. It will naturally grow because the delight of the spirit is to reveal the sun. As we admire and adore the sun, our love for him grows and love produces obedience, does it not? 
Is that not his clear command? If you love me, you will keep my commandments? And so let's consider the son for a moment. Do we not savor the love of God in his humility? As we look at our Lord, we see him condescend to us. What is it that birthed that condescension? Is John not explicit that it's the love of God? That the love of God sent the son as we go back into 1 John where it says, in this way, the love of God was manifested. Was it not the sending of the son to see our beloved, precious high king of heaven descend to dwell among us for a period of time? We look at his humility and we say, ah, behold, the love of God manifested. We see his humility, his kindness, his grace. Or perhaps let's go forward in the gospel narrative, shall we? We savor it in the son stooping down to wash the disciples' feet. Behold, love wonderful, miraculous love that the God, the Son has condescended to dwell with man. And then we see him all the more stoop down to wash the disciples' feet. What wonderful, magnificent love. Taking on the form of a servant in perhaps the most visceral way possible that he stoops down He wraps himself up as the chief servant of the home and he washes the feet of fallen men. And we see this love miraculously displayed or perhaps we hear it in blind Bartimaeus' cry, son of David, have mercy on me. Why did he give him ear? This blind beggar, why is it that the Lord of glory would even permit the words of blind Bartimaeus to run through his mind. And far past that, to go and to have mercy on him. We see the love of Christ as he cares for him. Or then I think of the feeding of the 5,000. If you pay attention to the introduction to that, it says he has mercy on them because they've been with him for so long. And he says, we'll, we'll feed them. And not only will we feed them, we'll feed them in a miraculous way where it will demonstrate the provision of God. And not only will it demonstrate the provision of God, I will teach them of the truest provision of God myself. And he goes on preaching, he goes on teaching while he fills their, fills their belly and gives them rest. Or then let's consider his preaching even for a moment. Did he not preach with booming authority? And was that preaching not a preaching of love? In his proclamation of both judgment and salvation, a proclamation of the kingdom of God, was was he not preaching filled to the brim with love? He goes on preaching authoritatively as the living word, and he preaches filled to the brim with love. And then we see his unique love praying for Peter in the midst of his failure, Peter denying him. Peter denying the Lord who bought him. And we see our Lord praying. What does he say to Peter? Ah, but I have prayed for you and you will not be overcome. See how he loves those who would reject him, the faithless. We see the love of our Lord and his care for Peter, his prayers for Peter. We see the love of our Lord as he is silent before Pilate. What a quick rebuke he could have given, yes? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the great advocate standing just to defend his perfect soul? He succeeds in defending us fallen sinners. Would it not have been the easiest case? To vindicate himself, to walk out, and if vindication would not have been his goal, to simply crush them where they stood? Just a few chapters prior to him standing silent before Pilate, he says simply the phrase, I am, and blows back a multitude. And here we see him silent before his shears. Why 
why silence? Why quiet in this moment? Certainly obedience to the Father. But John Stott, I think, beautifully says it, that he was delivered up for love. That he loved a particular people. That he was going to submit to his Father. But at the very same time, he was going to redeem his people. And that meant that he would go to the cross, that he would stand before Pilate silent. And then not only that, we see him make his way to the cross, carrying this wicked thing upon him. And caring even in that moment for his mother. Does he not look at John? Does he not say, even in the midst of all of this weight, the weight of his own frailty, because he was truly man, the weakness of his legs, the bleeding of his back, the crown of thorns thrust upon him, and he's making his way, carrying this lofty, heavy thing. In the midst of it, he pauses to think of how his mother will be fed. What great love that we see in his care for his mother. And then we see his hands and feet pierced for us. Do not overlook the clear passages in Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. Do not remove that of their spiritual worth. It's not simply saying that his hands would be pierced. It's telling you the cause. It's telling you the reason. His hands were pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed in our stead. We see him as his hands are pierced. We see him as he's bleeding upon the tree. And we see his love displayed. We see him lay down his life for us. And then in the very same phrase that we find John recording this interaction, he says, this is the way that you are to love one another. He laid down his life for you. You lay down your life for your brothers. And then let's go up upon that tree, shall we? We savor it in the son's promise to the repentant thief. He's gasping for air. And yet he gives enough oxygen to the phrase, today you will be with me in paradise. Why say it? Why was it necessary that our Lord look at this? Why not just let it be? Jesus, it was not necessary for him to say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Why would he utter such words to him? Would it not have been for his comfort even amidst his crucifixion? He looks at him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine as the thief on the cross who has looked to Christ in that moment, can you imagine those words in your ears as you are on a tree dying? What great hope is birthed in that man in that moment to hear the word of the Lord speak and guarantee his salvation, all the while accomplishing what is necessary to bring it about. What great love that he would look over and give him those words. Or then even the way that we see him forgive those who nailed him to the tree. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And remember, in the midst of all of this, it's a demonstration of love most certainly because his whole life is a revelation of it. And in the midst of this suffering and anguish, he's fighting for the air for which he can say these words. And he's going on saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we see him hanging there upon the tree still, Still, no life, no breath entering his lungs. The spear comes, pierces him in the side, and even there we see again proclamations of glory, blood and water flow, testifying to the death of our Lord. And not only, I think, testifying to the death of our Lord, but showing, showing that very same thing that we see in Adam, the place where his bride would be purchased from. We see him pierced through the rib, We see him die. We see him hanging upon the tree. But oh, let's not conclude there. 
let's press forward. Do we not see him raised for our justification? When that wondrous stone rolls away, does it not roll away in such a way that is filled with love? To demonstrate triumph over death, to be the firstborn among many brothers, is he not redeeming a multitude without number in his resurrection from the dead? Is he not declaring triumph over death and evil and sin and Satan? Yes, and he does all of this filled to the brim with love. We see him love. And then let's go just a couple more. We see Peter on the beach. Peter, after his denial of Christ, the only reason that he finds himself still in the faith is because the Lord Jesus had prayed for him. And Peter is sitting on that beach where he's fishing and the Lord calls to him. If there was any moment to send Peter away, it was here. It was here. He rejected the Lord three times. He was a coward in front of a slave woman. And then we see our Lord show up and not only restore him, the conclusion of the book of John is the restoration of Peter. And then he not only restores him, but gives him the greatest of commands to go forth and feed and care for the flock of God. Because he loved Peter. Because he loved him. We see such a wonderful demonstration of the love of God. And then perhaps a few more. Do we not see and hear this? Because oftentimes we consider even these moments, these wondrous executions of God's love. But let me give you a couple of more that we see in our Lord's life. Do we not see him loving as he rebukes his mother? Do we not see him in perfect love, absolutely humiliating the Pharisees? You see, we do not taint love and make it something less than what it is. Love is obedience to the Father, and we see our Lord Jesus execute it with perfection, both in the execution of redemption and in his rebuke and care for those, calling them to repentance, calling them to, free, to flee from the wrath to come. We see such a wonderful Lord. We see him demonstrating his love over and over and over again. But let's not stop before the end of the book, shall we? We will see his love yet again when he comes for us. What a wondrous demonstration of the love of God that he will not leave his bride here in dismay. No, he will come for her. And as he comes for her, he will crush all of his enemies in the wake. Perfect love. Perfect love demonstrated. Dear saint, if you want to nurture genuine love in your soul, stare at Christ. I have given you but an iota of the ways in which we can look to him in every page of scripture. I didn't even touch Old Testament revelation. All throughout this, we see perfect displays of the love of God in the Son. If you want to nurture love, this lofty command that I feel as though I fail at daily, because I do, stare at the Son. Fix your eyes upon him, as the writer of Hebrews would say. Fix your eyes on the Son. Now, that is how we nurture. Dear Saint, every command that we go forth from here, we are always a people who are looking to the Son. The command that we find, again, in Hebrews 12, to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the concept there is do not break gaze. Do not break gaze. Do not look to the streams, look to the fountain. Never find yourself attempting to understand love apart from the Son. You look to Him. You're struggling in your marriage, look to Christ. Admire Him, adore Him. You're struggling in the workplace, how you're loving others in the world. Look to Christ, see his care and wonder and do everything that you can. Submit yourself to the spirit and long to imitate our Lord in all of life. We look to our Lord. 
Now, in our immediate context, we must understand its expression, in particularly inside the church. How is it in the midst of possessing this based upon the Spirit's work and nurturing it by fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Christ our Lord? What are the commands? What are the ways in which we are to execute this? First, 1 John 2, 5, to sum it up, genuine love keeps God's word. Genuine love never does something outside the command and will of God. It does not do it. Never buy it. Never buy it. Genuine love submits to God's word and it does so joyfully. The, the love of God never prompts us to do something outside of the will of God. And hear me, one of the number one ways I hear people excuse their trespasses is saying things like, but I love him or I love it. I don't care and you don't. You don't love it because if you loved it, you'd stay far away from it. If you loved Christ, you would obey him, dear saint. When we say that we love God, we do not pervert that concept of love. Love obeys. Love delights in obedience. It keeps God's word. And then going forward, John 15, 9 through 10 says this, abide in my love. Again, going back to that concept of sitting at the feet of Christ. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Dear saint, part of our obedience to God, part of our obedience in loving one another and loving him is sitting in his love as we obey him. Listen to the phrase, listen to the duality of obedience and love here. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If I could give you no other reason to obey Jesus, it would be this one. Because when you obey his commandments, you are actively abiding in his love. I don't need any other reason. If the reality is, as I obey him, I get to experience more and more and more of the love of God in my life, what a wonderful reason to obey, to simply delight in him. Furthermore, 1 John 3, 16, again, lays out the concept of laying down one's life for our brothers. John 15, 13 says this from our Lord's mouth, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love is the love that we are called to within the body of Christ. Genuine love is a self-sacrificial love. Show me in the life of Christ where his love was not self-sacrificial. Give me one occurrence. His very breathing here on the earth was sacrificial. Self-sacrificial love. We admire and adore him in the midst of our admiration. We go forth obeying. Again, genuine love cares for the needs of the brothers. And here in 1 John 3, 17 through 18, it's making reference to the physical needs of our brothers and sisters. Genuine love gladly offers up what is necessary for the physical needs of our brothers and sisters. Genuine love does this. Let's not downgrade it. We're not gonna call it some type of lesser obedience when we say care for those who are impoverished, care for the widow and orphan. Those are commands from God. That is the aim. That is what we are called to. And we must never, never lessen that weight by over-spiritualizing it. The call is that we care for one another's physical needs. Furthermore, genuine love, and if there was one thing that we all need, genuine love covers a multitude of sin. Now, let's isolate this. 1 Peter 4.8. Spend time here studying this because what I don't want you to misunderstand here, I've heard this cited a number of times. And again, things can be true and at the very same time, not in that text. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since because 
Love covers a multitude of sin. Does the love of Christ cover a multitude of sin? Most certainly. One of the ways in which that is most clearly executed is when we as Christians love one another to such a degree to say, the blood of Christ covers it. My relationship can continue. We let, hear me, our love is corrupted when it does not cover a multitude of sin. When we allow petty Though they be sin and wicked and must be atoned for through the finished work of Christ. Don't misunderstand. But when we see the sin committed one to another as so great as to divide brother and sister, hear me, I do not think we understand genuine love. Because we have not seen it in Christ at that point. Because if it's not going to be brought to account at the day of judgment, maybe you can overlook it. Dear Saint, genuine love covers a multitude of sins. It says often, without any type of confrontation from time to time, I will just let the blood of Christ cover that and I will forgive them. Furthermore, not to run the entire way back through 1 Corinthians 13, but I do want to bring out the last four statements that we find. Genuine love lives in the light of 1 Corinthians 13. And remember, 1 Corinthians 13 was written to correct a malpractice of love and furthermore, a malpractice of life inside the Corinthian church. And it says this, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. It bears a unique weight. Again, look to our Lord what weight he bore. We can certainly look to the cross and we can see the heinous weight that he bore. Our sins were laid upon his shoulders. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. And this is one that I think we work through from time to time, but I I think one commentator said it best. Love believes what is best in the individual until proven otherwise. That we assume graciously. Because the reality is, you might impugn sin to someone where there is absolutely none. And dear saying, it is our responsibility, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to assume graciously that they are conducting themselves in a godly way until proven otherwise. Dear saying, we are called to assume graciously about one another. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. There is a, a hope, a desire in the midst of genuine love, of restoration. There is a belief that these things will come to fruition. Can I be honest with you? Pastorally, from time to time, I get dismayed. I think that there's only one solution. And the solution is always the worst possible option. Can I tell you what I'm doing in that moment? I am not letting love be genuine because I am not hoping in the power of the Spirit to bring someone to repentance, to bring about restoration or reconciliation. We hope genuinely because we believe that God is able to do things that we can't even imagine. We believe, we hope, and it's most certainly endures. Dear saint, if you have lived the Christian life for long, especially in the context of the local church, you have been wounded. You have been. I'm not going to pretend like you haven't. You have been wounded. Someone has sinned against you. You have been wounded in some fashion or another. If you have been wounded, hear me, love endures all things. Love endures the wounds. And love presses in even amidst the wounds. Do we not see our Lord have his beard ripped out? Do we not see him spit upon? And what did he do amidst that? He did not retaliate. He did not curse them. Instead, he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. We endure all things. Genuine love endures, it bears, it believes, it hopes. And it goes on doing so because it longs to see the glory of God made manifest in the world. The reason that we long and that we desire to have a genuine love for one another is because when we love one another, we proclaim to the world the love of Christ. How will they know us? How will they know us? 
Is it not by our love for one another? Is it not by the way that we care? Is it not by the way that we bring about even as agents of the Spirit, the sanctification of others? Dear saint, we are called to love one another to the glory of God. And here is the purest way to understand, is your love genuine? Why are you loving? Why? Do you love because Christ first loved you? Do you love because the Spirit has poured the love of God into your heart? Do you love because the love that you have for one another glorifies and makes much of Christ? Or are you placing some type of facade on so that you can demonstrate some feeble form of love so that you might receive some praise and glory? The true indicator of a genuine love is that the cry, the the heart, the desire of genuine love is that Christ be magnified. If that's the anchor, then you'll obey him appropriately because you're not looking for applause from anywhere but him. We long, we live, we love with the intention of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, if I could give you one point of wondrous, wondrous hope, we will have a world of love. We will have it. And so when you find yourself with that profane, wicked sin that is trying everything in its power to interject into the love that God calls you to express genuinely, look forward to the day when you will never feel that pull. That the command will be expressed and demonstrated perfectly without ever having to hear it because you will be so enthralled with the beauty and the joy and the love of Christ And sin will have been placed underneath his boot for the final time. And you will be able to love one another perfectly. Long for a world of love. Dear saint, we do not look heavenward enough. We do not look heavenward enough. It gives us great hope and drive and zeal in our pursuits. We look forward to that world of love where Christ will be and he will be all. And as we do so, we pray, as we see that wonderful world of love that we long for, we pray, yes, Lord, your kingdom, your will on earth and begin work this genuine love out in me. The goal, the heartbeat of the Christian is bring me to heaven because Christ is there, because it's a world of love, because there all this sin, all this wickedness fades, and there I can gladly sit at his feet forevermore. And so, dear saint, we will not lessen the command. We will not lessen the command. Let love be genuine. And brothers and sisters, when you fail in this task, flee to Christ for forgiveness, because that is what it needs. And when you desire to see it nurtured and grow, flee to Christ and sit under his, his headship. Learn from him. And obey him. And you see that the, the central theme of all of this is in our failures, we flee to Christ. and our longing for obedience, we flee to Christ. But dear saint, we must always be fleeing to Christ if we desire to let love be genuine. Let's pray together.